You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to today's seminar here at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And I am very delighted to uh, say my warm welcome to Rose Göttemiller, the Deputy Secretary General of NATO. Göttemiller has previously served as Under Secretary for Arms Control and International Security at the U.S. Department of State, and also as Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Arms Control, Verification and Compliance. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here to Stockholm today on this beautiful day. Uh, Rose will deliver a keynote speech, which is entitled A New Face for Arms Control. And after that, we have two commentators sitting here. First, Ian Anthony, who is Director for CIPRI's European Security Program. And then we also have Gudrun Persson, Associate Professor, Russia and Eurasia Studies Program at the Swedish Defense Research Agency. And the person moderating the seminar is myself, Christian Alström. I am director of UV. And with those few words of introduction, I would like to give the floor to the Deputy Secretary General, Rose Katemil. Please, you have the floor. Thank you very much, uh, Christer. And it's a pleasure to be back here in the Institute. It has been uh, some years since I've been here, but uh, I've, of course, been following your work with great interest, and uh, as well as being back on the same uh, podium with my friend Ian Anthony and uh, well acquainted uh, with uh, the work at CIPRI, of course. So in general, it is good to be back in Stockholm, where there is so much uh, work uh, going on that is of interest to me in the world of arms control, non-proliferation, and international security. And Gudrun, we haven't had a chance to meet each other before, but I welcome this opportunity to be on the same pod uh, podium with you as well today and look, look forward to hearing your comments. I thought uh, to begin talking about a new phase for arms control, uh, it's really a good thing to remind ourselves that arms control is not a good in and of itself, but because it contributes to our security. The security in my new hat, not so new now, but three years old hat of Deputy Secretary General of NATO, I can also say the security of NATO countries. Arms control disarmament and non-proliferation should complement security and defense. Indeed, it's my very firm view that arms control disarmament and non-proliferation are part of a continuum of security and defense. With verifiable and reciprocal restraint measures, we can enhance mutual predictability, strengthen confidence in our defense capabilities, avoid arms racing, and sustain strategic stability, all to everyone's benefit. But the key to success is a firm and shared commitment to verifiability and reciprocity. The value of uh, arms control, disarmament, and non-proliferation dissipates if one party abandons that commitment. So with the demise of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, on precisely that basis, the Russians abandon their commitments. Where do we go from here? We all acknowledge that this moment is a very difficult one for classic arms control, at least as we've known it from the early 1970s until the entry in, into force of New START in February 2011, and now with uh, almost, well, we're at eight years of implementation of New START. But even as we entered into the negotiation of the New START Treaty in 2009, I really thought that we were too stuck in the past. 
we were not taking advantage or attempting to take into account of the benefits accruing from the information revolution. Those who are engaged in non-military control procedures, such as preventing smuggling of endangered, endangered materials, uh, endangered species, and natural resources have long been using digitized monitoring, control, and record keeping. Why are arms control inspectors stuck with using rulers and pads of paper to record and sketch? Why do they have to leave their laptops at home when they go on inspections? Partially, that's the way it's always been done. But also, there are legitimate security concerns about digital recording devices that would and will have to be addressed in future arms control negotiations. But mostly, it was because the difficulties of negotiating new verification measures, incorporating some of these new information technologies, I think, has seemed too daunting. But it's high time that we do do some serious thinking about this, and I argue that it should not be all that challenging. After all, I uh, mentioned the way that natural resources controls have been run uh, for now almost two decades, much incorporating the revolution of the uh, uh, information space uh, for things like tracking fisheries resources. So should it be all that hard to track submarines? Well, we'll talk about that some more in a moment. Uh, so I think this moment, as difficult as it is, is a time to truly consider what we might be able to accomplish in future arms control agreements. It is a moment of historic transition, and we should open our minds and take full advantage of it. I am optimistic, and I will give you three reasons why. First, problems that we thought were insurmountable 30 years ago are now amenable to resolution. The prime example here is monitoring of warheads on delivery vehicles. When the INF Treaty entered into force, it banned all ground-launched intermediate-range missiles, whether nuclear or conventional, because we simply could not discern the difference between, uh, we could not verify the difference between nuclear and conventional warheads on the front ends of uh, such missiles. So although it was called the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, it banned all nuclear and conventional weapons in that range. Today, we are in a much better position, both technically and in policy terms, to do so. And we've been trying this out through the reentry vehicle on-site inspections that have been carried out now, as I said, for about eight years under the new START Treaty. We are beginning, uh, I think, to prove the principle very well that it is indeed possible to discern the difference between nuclear and conventional objects on the front ends of missiles. I personally am in no doubt that if somehow we got to the negotiating table today to uh, negotiate a new INF treaty, perhaps bringing the Chinese, perhaps bringing others uh, who are deploying these missiles into the negotiations, we could inst institute a ban on nuclear-only ground-launched missiles. It's what I call putting the N back in INF because we would be able to verify a ban on nuclear intermediate-range ground-launched missiles. Alternatively, we could even impose a limit, although those of you who have worked on arms control verification over the years will recognize that uh, implementing a limit and being assured that a limit is being, uh, is being abided by is much more compli complicated than uh, implementing a ban, because a ban, it's simply a green light, red light. Is there any nuclear object or not? And, uh, and a limit is much more difficult. You have to count the warheads. So, first reason, 
we are beginning to solve some problems that we thought were insurmountable 30 years ago. Second, concepts that have been tried and proven true over 40 plus years of arms control regimes are still available to us, and we should not think we have to throw everything out and reinvent the wheel at this moment. I wanna underscore this point because there's been a great deal of pessimism about where we are in the regimes and people are throwing up their hands and saying, we need to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I don't think that is the case at all. A fine example here is the concept of freedom to mix, wherein a party to an arms control treaty is given the opportunity to decide just how many weapon systems of a certain type he wants to deploy within a certain negotiated ceiling choosing not to deploy other systems. Looking to the future, one might consider whether controls on hypersonic glide vehicles, for example, might be incorporated into a freedom of mix approach. If the Russian launch vehicles are existing types of intercontinental ballistic missiles, as I believe they are, for example, then Russia would have to decide what normal ICBMs it would forego deploying to have a certain number of HGVs uh, in its arsenal. The same goes, by the way, for several of the new kinds of nuclear systems that President Putin advertised in March of 2018. If they would be brought under the constraints of the New START Treaty through the new kinds provisions of the treaty, then Russia would have to decide through a freedom to mix approach what part of their established arsenal of traditional ICBMs they were going to hold on to and what part of that arsenal would now become um, populated by these uh, new kinds of systems. Third, and finally, I would make the case that uh, I would make the case that what we need uh, to do is take a good hard look at the information revolution and what it has done for monitoring and sensing. Already, much is being done with commercial satellite in, uh, imagery. Again, I give a lot of credit to CIPRI for some of the work it's been doing in this area. The easy example all of us can get our arms around is the work that's being done to monitor developments in the DPRK missile program. A lot of work being done with uh, commercial satellite imagery and data nowadays. Uh, in addition to which, we are all concerned today about ubiquitous sensing what could be done to deprive us of our privacy of free movement, free association, and free expression. At the same time, I have been arguing for some years that ubiquitous sensing can improve our verification capabilities. The ideas are controversial, but some of them are already in play, again, in the environmental arena. Uh, for years, the notion of engaging citizen volunteers has been widely used in environmental monitoring. Uh, I think a good example here is the way Japanese citizen volunteers improve the radiation detection in range of the Fukushima power plant by using uh, apps on their mobile phones, apps designed to detect radiation. If we are all worried about strengthening the ban on the chemical weapons, uh, uh, strengthening the ban on chemical weapons use, the ban that is inherent in the Chemical Weapons Convention, should we not be, empo be empowering those who are living with the threat of chlorine attacks to be able to report rapidly and accurately when such attacks occur. This might be done through dispersed sensing mechanisms. I think these ideas are worth debating and worth developing. And uh, I think, again, this is an area that shows some promise. So I'm going to uh, take a hopeful note in this part of my presentation and say, I grasp that we are in a difficult moment with regard to uh, conventional, uh, I would say, not conventional, that's a little confusing, but 
the arms control treaties and agreements as they have existed up to this point. But I think we should regard this moment as one of opportunity to look at the future and consider what we should be doing differently to imp improve the verifiability of uh, the treaties of the future. We've had enough problems with noncompliance that the Reagan-esque adage of trust but verify needs to be embraced now as never before. I think Sweden, frankly, is getting on with it, about which I will say more in a moment. So where do we go from here? As we look ahead, the Nonproliferation Treaty Review Conference next year is an important milestone to engage all relevant actors. Sweden is doing a great deal to rebuild trust and confidence in arms control and global disarmament in the run-up to the 2020 conference. I am very much welcoming Sweden's stepping stones approach. Uh, this is a, an effort to bring together a group of countries, including NPT parties and non-parties, ban treaty supporters and opponents, to work together on a positive agenda to support the review conference. And it's a wonderful example of Sweden playing their historic role in building bridges toward disarmament. The stepping stone approach complements a US initiative called Creating the Environment for Nuclear Disarmament, or SEND, C-E-N-D, pronounced SEND in English. SEND brings together a diverse group of nations inside and outside the NPT to work together to further nuclear disarmament. Both initiatives seek to reduce risks and improve disarmament verification capabilities. They are complementary and help create the energy and enthusiasm that can buoy the 2020 NPT Review Conference and lead to its success. Beyond the Review Conference, we will need to use our combined positive momentum to build on the opportunities we have in Geneva, in New York, in Vienna, and in Brussels, and in all of our capitals, including Washington and Moscow, also Beijing, to engage. We can do even more. NATO allies are developing positive agendas across the entire arms control, disarmament, and nonproliferation spectrum. They are revitalizing their support for the Chemical Weapons Convention. Following the lead of the French, we will support a positive agenda in the Biological Weapons Convention uh, this year. We are looking at possibilities to improve the governance of space, and we are considering what we can do together in arms control and nonproliferation to address growing global and regional missile threats. We can also do more to contribute to other global initiatives, such as the Quad Nuclear Verification Partnership, another Swedish-supported initiative together with Norway, the UK, and the United States. NATO has a rich history and experience, as well as technical expertise to contribute. So there's much that we can achieve working together on practical and inclusive efforts. I want to hear from you this afternoon what you think about these ideas. I'd like to hear uh, more uh, indeed about how we can work together, Sweden and NATO, to make the world a safer place. To conclude, a new phase of arms control is not an easy one, but I am optimistic. You'll recall that the 80s weren't a particularly easy time either, with uh, long periods of hiatus in the negotiation of important treaties, the START Treaty itself, the first START Treaty, and the INF Treaty, long periods of hi hiatus leading up to practically a decade, the complete negotiation of uh, the START Treaty, and uh, little, less, little more than half that time to accomplish INF. Yet, we managed to negotiate agreements that made the world a safer place. 
We can and must do more to support global arms control efforts because arms control is not a good in, in and of itself. As I said in my opening remarks, it is a contribution to our security and security, of course, is in our mutual interest. So thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to our discussion. And again, I look forward to the comments of my, my colleagues up here on the podium. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Deputy Secretary General. And I would now like to give the floor to Ian, reflect upon nuclear again a little bit from the European perspective. Ian, you have the floor. Okay, well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, it, it's always a pleasure to listen to Rose because she combines this um, sense of what uh, needs to be done um, uh, with a pragmatic sense of what's possible. So I think it's always the right place to begin. Um, I would say, I would, I would of course, agree with, uh, with much of what, what Rose was, was um, getting at. Um, first, the point about continuity and change. Um, there are certain elements of the security environment which are kind of enduring. Um, if we think about approaches to deterrence, for example, um, the idea of conditional response. Uh, when we suffered the strategic shock in 2014, um, I think the immediate uh, response was a sense of lack of preparedness. We weren't actually ready to deal with uh, the events as they were unfolding. I think this um, sense that we have to get to a situation where states feel confident that they have uh, the capacity to respond to events is, uh, is necessary. We must get back to this. Another enduring feature is um, accepting a degree of mutual vulnerability, um, but also putting that vulnerability within acceptable parameters. Um, I think this is also an enduring feature uh, of the sort of strategic environment. <coughs> Um, but, of course, there are also very significant changes that have to be taken into account. Um, in comparison with the past, we're now thinking about a much wider spectrum of contingencies. Um, so when we say conditional response, the response has to be to um, arrange from what could be uh, public order issues, um, the agenda around so-called hybrid threats, right through to a spectrum of uh, conflict between um, peer adversaries, uh, but not only a conflict of a um, global scale, but also limited uh, contingencies at a regional or sub-regional level. So this strategic environment is also being changed. I think it's now recognized by an accelerating pace of change, um, not least in the area of technology, uh, which is bringing with it serious communication challenges. And in comparison with the past, where if there was a crisis, um, it was possible to establish um, communication channels that would be um, both secure and private. Um, a lot of what's happening now is played out in the public domain um, with interventions from civil society, from media, from uh, various points of the political spectrum which poses a great communication challenge in actually managing contingencies as they arrive. So we have a very complicated environment to deal with. Um, we bring this back, I suppose, to the topic of today, the, the arms control perspective. Against that background, um, 
in the short term from a European perspective, I think we're in a period of organizing our thinking. Um, organizing our thinking around the different challenges that we're going to have to deal with, whether it's the question of global, regional, sub-regional approaches, whether it's the question of different types of technology which need to be included. Um, uh, really organizing our thinking is, is the phase that we're in now. Um, that has to go alongside the implementation of the plans that have already been made uh, for capability development. Um, there are going to be more resources to spend for European countries. How are we going to spend them uh, in an environment where we still have um, very wide differences between European countries? You have those which are determined, I think, to try and stay close to the leading edge of technology development in the military sphere. And there are those which are essentially using their resources to buy legacy systems, refurbished Cold War equipment. So we have to manage a very broad spectrum of different types of country in this intergovernmental um, process of thinking about um, uh, the future security environment. But that doesn't mean that we can't um, also think about whether there are things that could be done today. I must admit the idea of putting the N back in INF is a very attractive one. Um, I would actually say, if possible, we should consider uh, not only ground launch, but also extending the ban on um, nuclear intermediate range forces out to sea. Um, I think it would be worthwhile if you think about some of the contingencies that we may come up against in the coming years. Um, for example, the recreation of the US Navy as a, as a strike force. Um, the second fleet was very active in uh, bolt ops. It is going to be present more and more in this uh, um, European um, environment, both in the Baltic and in the high north. If we have um, ambiguity around whether uh, anti-ship cruise missiles on, on ships and submarines are nuclear or not nuclear, and at least in the public literature, many of them are described as dual use. Um, there could be risks uh, associated with that. I can't see if you're the commander of a task force that you would be willing to take a risk that the anti-ship missiles on an adversary are conventionally armed. You would have to assume for planning purposes that they're nuclear armed. And that means essentially those nuclear armed missiles are gonna to have to be eliminated before they come to their firing stations. Um, so I think for purposes of stability, it would be worth considering whether we could extend the ban on nuclear, um, ground-launched nuclear intermediate range forces out to sea. So um, I think there are certain things that would be worth uh, discussing in the period while we're trying to organize our thinking. Um, just um, one final note. I think, uh, of course, the Europeans will, will have their own uh, opportunities to intervene also in the discussions and, and participate in the discussions that are taking place in NATO. Um, and I think there are still a lot of relevant insights from the comprehensive approach to arms control that NATO developed in the late 80s. Um, so I agree with what Rose said, really, that it's worth looking at what's already in existence and what's already been done to see how we can take advantage of good ideas. Um, the relevant insights, I would say, from the 89 comprehensive concept include making sure that there isn't a differentiation between capability development and thinking about arms control. That this is seen in an integrated way. 
both when thinking about which new capabilities need to be added and should be added, um, and the potential consequences of different arms control approaches. Um, just to give an example to, to perhaps make it clearer, if it was possible to reach an agreement on a certain uh, limitations on conventional weapons, um, but the side effect of that was to displace activity into the development of new types of cyber capability, um, would we actually have gained anything in terms of security? So thinking in an integrated way about how different types of capability impact one another was very much part of the um, comprehensive approach to arms control in the 80s. We shouldn't lose that. Um, it would be a mistake to see things in isolation, even if negotiating forums have to be separate for practical reasons. Or um, another clear insight from the 80s uh, comprehensive concept was the need to minimize surprise and increase predictability. And in the um, very complicated and fast-changing strategic environment that I was describing before, with all of the challenges of um, communication between leaders in a crisis, it seems to me that this um, doing whatever we can to reduce the risk of surprise or the perception of surprise <coughs> Um, is also an important insight that needs to be preserved from, from past work. So um, I think I, I agree completely that we, we probably don't expect to see major breakthroughs in arms control in the coming years, um, but we have a lot of potential for organizing our thinking, um, developing the tools that will become relevant at some point. Uh, there will come a time when, um, when restraint measures reassert themselves in a more balanced way against active measures. Um, and, and we should use this time in the most productive way that we can. Thank you very much, Ian. Then like <laughs> then I would like to give the floor to Gudrun, please. All right. Thank you very much <clears throat> for giving me the opportunity to sort of lay out the the Russian perspective on, on these issues. Uh, I'm also very excited to be on the same panel as, even though you don't know me, I know you. It feels like it, anyway. <laughs> um, so just, just if, uh, uh, I thought I'd try to address uh, three points here. Um, first, uh, reactions in Moscow about the termination of the INF Treaty. Uh, secondly, the current uh, nuclear doctrine. And finally, some current discussion on nuclear arms control in view of new START and MPT review conference. First, however, it's absolutely clear that Russia has wanted to get out of the INF Treaty for years. And the reason is that they link this consistently uh, with their objection to the U.S. missile defense. Already in February 2007, both President Putin and the then chief of the general staff, Yuri Balayevsky, said that the INF Treaty was no longer in Russia's interests. Furthermore, in 2017, 10 years, late, 10 years later, Putin referred to the INF Treaty and said, our chief engineer committed suicide because he believed it was a betrayal of his country. It's a tragic story. Let us change it now. 
So as to the reactions uh, in, in Moscow at, this, at the uh, official political and military leadership put all the blame on the United States. Um, the president links it to the US walking away from the ABM treaty in 2009. And in February this year, he also said that using medium range target missiles and deploying launchers in Romania and Poland that are fit for launching Tomahawk cruise missiles, the US has openly violated the treaty. Uh, now regarding the uh, Russian violations of the treaty, Putin just wipes it off as a far-fetched text. And this is in spite of the fact that Russia has been developing in violation of the treaty. At the same time, there are experts in the Russian community, also military ones, uh, who do not agree with the political relationship in Russia and refute uh, that the US missile defense deployment goes to Russian Western borders and say that it doesn't uh, pose a threat to the Russian intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, the problem is that their analysis is met with distrust by the current political leadership. And this brings me in just very briefly on the decision-making process regarding these issues, arms control and treaties uh, in Russia. Uh, there are some peculiarities, uh, these issues, they don't necessarily lie within the realms of the foreign ministry, uh, but above all, the presidential administration, the Security Council, and including the general staff. Decision-making in this area is marked by, of course, secrecy, close decision-making pro process, lack of opposition in parliament. But it is different from Soviet times. There is an expert community, civilians and military, uh, but as I said, the problem is that any dissenting views are not listened to or taken seriously, but it's tolerated. Now, regarding the current doctrine, first of all, I should point out the obvious, uh, namely that the role of nuclear weapons in Russian foreign and military policy has increased since 2011 12. Uh, the current military doctrine keeps the same wording as the previous one, uh, which stipulates that the Russian Federation reserves the right to utilize nuclear weapons uh, when the very existence of the state is under threat. Now, in later years, the discussion about a possible preventive use of nuclear weapons has sparked controversy both in Russia and the West. Some of the military thinkers in, in Russia have argued for a change in the military doctrine that would explicitly regulate Russia's possible use of a preventive nuclear strike. Last year, uh, Putin uh, intervened in this debate and um, sort of wanted to clarify the situation. He was emphatic stating that our nuclear weapons doctrine does not provide for a preemptive strike. Our concept, he said, is based on a launch on warning 
strike. And he then described the Russian missile attack early warning system so that there would be time when we had this issue. However, uh, it's not clear whether this means that the current military doctrine's first use of nuclear weapons has been altered. So in this area, ambiguity prevails. The point here uh, is that the termination of the INF Treaty and a possible deployment of new US medium-range missiles in <coughs> Europe and in Asia, this is in, in the Russian debate, will undermine the concept of launch on warning doctrine. There will simply be no time to react. In that case, according to an influential military commander, General uh, Viktor Yesin, for those of you who know him, um, has stated that nothing remains for us but to change our doctrine from a launch of warning to the concept of preemptive strike. Regarding briefly um, the current discussion on, on nuclear arms control, we should understand that in, in, in Russian doctrine and foreign military policy, uh, strategic deterrence is the foundation. And this is what they are sort of trying to protect. The US and Russia has for the past eight years, as far as I'm aware, discussed the next charge. And this is a very long pause, decades. Such talk and rose here, exactly how many years? I've seen the, the figure 50. Again, at the top political level, Putin has made clear that the collapse of the INF Treaty also threatens the foundation of the global security architecture, including START uh, and MPT. And in the Russian debate and among uh, scholars and my academic colleagues, uh, it is uh, clear that those treaties are in jeopardy. And again, the president has said that we will not knock on a locked door anymore. We will wait until our partners are and become aware of the need for dialogue on this matter. And here I also agree with, with Rose that uh, it's important not to throw everything away. And Alexei Arbatov, well-known Russian academic in the field, recently said when I was in Moscow that uh, the most stupid thing you can do if you want to renovate a house is to blow away the foundation. And finally, in in Russia, in this uh, debate on nuclear arms control, there is a strong trend that Alexei Arbatov calls the revisionists. They advise politicians that there is no need for treaties. We are better off without them. And this trend has strengthened over the past 10 years. And this, of course, is potentially very dangerous for the arms control architecture. 
And I think I'm going to just put them forward to the I would like to thank the panel for the very interesting interventions that you have made. And I have um, just a few questions that I would like to raise. And of course, after that, there will be questions also from the audience being raised to the panel. Uh, since uh, also, Deputy Secretary Arnold, you have, you have a long experience from arms control negotiations. And I just wonder if we look at the INF Treaty and that experience with it's negotiation, entry into force, operation, and then the demise now in, in the beginning of August. Are there any particular lessons that we should take with us from the INF experience? We're going to uh, move on to a, a another similar negotiation. My top lesson is don't close down a verification regime. You know, because it was a ban, it was a ban on all intermediate range ground launch systems. Once the process of elimination of those systems was completed in December of 2009, the verification regime of INF came to a close. We should have sustained suspect site, suspect site uh, inspections of some form. Under the treaty, we should never have closed down the verification regime of New START. We could have called the Russians much earlier than we did. I mean, uh, notably, it was the flight test series that first raised questions, but we could have uh, also, under INF, uh, begun uh, the process of, of raising with them some of the concerns with the flight test program, but most significant, uh, particularly as they began to move into operational deployment, uh, would be uh, suspect site uh, inspections. So uh, that would be my advice going forward. If you've got a good inspection regime, hang on to it, no matter what. Thank you. Uh, I also have a, a question more perhaps to you, Ian, since you're focusing also on the, on the European side of things, because with the demise of the INF Treaty, in a way you get a flashback from the 1980s when there was the debate about uh, building of, of weapon systems in Europe and so on. Have you been giving any thought to what the Europeans should do now when it comes to this new situation? I mean, perhaps nothing will happen in the short term, but in the longer term things may happen also in Europe. And I wonder if you have thought about that. I have a view on it. Of course, it, I'm not going to be making the decision. But um, some of the immediate responses um, will have to depend on the United States because we simply don't have the capabilities in Europe. Um, but I was mentioning that we, we have this perspective out to 2030 where we expect to have more resources available for spending on defense. And I wonder if we don't need to think very seriously about creating a European strike capability based around conventional intermediate range um, forces, um, integrated fully into NATO command systems so that it's clear that this is not a separate endeavor, but it's integrated into a Euro-Atlantic response. Um, significant part of the US response is probably going to be at sea. That's the indication. Um, in an environment where it's clear that the US has very important priorities in Asia. Um, the deployment patterns of the ships might mean that the wrong ship is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, I think a European capability would also uh, be a strong signal that, that Europe is not going to depend excessively on the United States in perpetuity, but is going to take more responsibility itself. 
So I think one of the things we should look at seriously when we think about the next generation of European air power is the development of a, a European intermediate range conventionally armed um, strike force. Thank you very much, uh, Gudrun. Um, I mean, given the, I mean, you know very much about uh, the Russian forces and so on, how they, because you're part of the authors of the defense research establishment for this big Russia report that comes, is it every second year or third, third year? Yeah. New one coming, yes. And in, given the fact that, I mean, the, the, the Russian Navy has, uh, has demonstrated in Syria the capacity to, with ships, send off cruise missiles into to targets. Uh, do you have, have you thought about the reason why Russia sort of purposely developed this land-based cruise, cruise missile, this 9M729 missile, uh, since they, of course, had the capacity from the sea to strike European targets? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, to my mind, uh, the development of this land-based missile uh, probably started earlier and that they wanted uh, something because of all the grievances that felt towards the West in, in general, in particular. So in essence, what I'm saying is they did it because I have a, a slightly different view of this, and, and Putin himself has talked about it. I think the Russians saw the proliferation of intermediate-range ground launch systems across Eurasia and uh, decided that they needed them not so much for the NATO market, so to say, but for developments they saw in Asia. And, and Putin has been, from time to time, quite explicit about this. He is... Uh, said publicly that they're concerned about, when asked this question by journalists, they're concerned about DPRK, China, India, Pakistan, Iran, all developing these missiles. That points toward a Eurasian rationale rather than a narrowly anti-NATO or um, anti-Europe rationale. So that's, that's my view. But the other one doesn't exclude. <laughs> they are not mutually no, uh, no, exclusive by no means. Thank you. Um, I, I, I was also a bit struck by the optimist tone of your keynote speech. I mean, I've been working with nuclear issues for quite some time, and I don't really feel over-optimistic when I look upon the world right now, because I think so many things are happening. And uh, last week, we had Jeffrey Eberhardt, you know, from State Department was here and talked about the NPT, and he was also very optimistic. Because in a way, if you look from a sort of a helicopter perspective now, you have several things happening at the same time, which you don't really know how they will play out against each other. We have the Iran deal, uh, which is now in, more or less in limbo. The INF, who passed away on the 2nd of August. We have the MPT review conference coming up now in 2020. And of course, the question of new start, if it will be extended in 2021. Uh, and some commentators have also raised uh, the sort of specter of that we will sort of enter into an era of unregulated uh, nuclear stockpiles. Does the panel have any view of if that is a sort of realistic uh, scenario that we will end up in a situation where nuclear weapons will not be governed by, by treaties, international law, binding on international law? Uh, 
I don't see any sign that the NPT is in danger of going away. So uh, there is uh, multilateral international regulation of a sort inherent in, in the NPT. It implies that those states who have taken uh, disarmament steps, which have been significant since the late 1960s in the entry into force of the NPT, should not reverse those steps going forward. I do agree, however, that we are uh, potentially, depending on what happens to the New START Treaty, looking at a period where for the first time in, uh, well, SALT entered into force in the early 70s. So yes, well nigh 50 years, almost 50 years, since we've had some form of bilateral Soviet US, Russian US limitation or reduction going on. I don't welcome uh, that uh, potential or possibility. I cannot tell you now how uh, real is the possibility. I will say, uh, as far as the extension of New START is concerned, that I've been uh, really underscoring uh, you know, a significant message, which is the way Article 14 of the treaty is written is very simple. It's meant to uh, allow the two sides, and this was written at the time when START 1 went out of force in December of 2009, and we were not able to complete the new START treaty in time. So there was concern, you know, looking forward at that time that, oh my lord, you know, START is out of force, we don't have new START yet, what's going to happen? Uh, are the two countries going to go haywire and suddenly start building up? It didn't happen. Uh, that was December of 2009, and new START did not enter into force into, until February of 2011. It's cold comfort, I know, but we have faced, we have in the past had a period where there were no negotiated treaties in place between the United States and Russia regulating uh, strategic nuclear forces. But uh, we did agree at that time uh, that we would not take steps uh, that uh, would undermine the spirit of either START or the, we hoped, uh, upcoming New START Treaty and continued to behave in a uh, responsible manner, I would say. Again, I'm not recommending this course, but I'm just saying I, people are throwing up their hands and, and really succumbing to the notion that suddenly they'll just be unleashed this enormous arms race. And I think both the United States and Russian Federation are also mindful of their responsibilities under the, uh, under the NPT, which is to continue the process of, of disarmament. Let me just further say about New START extension, because I've been really advising, don't overload the process. It was written very simply, Article 14 of the treaty, New START can be extended by a simple exchange of diplomatic notes. It can be done overnight, assuming Washington and Moscow agree. There is no reason to load up that process with uh, all kinds of negotiations uh, for other things that each party may want. So just, just bear that in mind. The actual technical procedure is a very, very simple one. And the other point I'd like to make is that there's some kind of worry sometimes among those who are concerned about being stuck with New START for another five years. That's somehow the critique you hear. We're going to be stuck with this treaty with we think is less than perfect for, for five years. It's not the point. Again, the article is written so that it may be extended for five years or until it is superseded by a new treaty. So my message has been consistently, go ahead. Please negotiate a new and better treaty. Delightful if you know it gets across the finish line, and at that point, New Start would be superseded. No problem. So I think those are important uh, points to bear in mind.
Um, I, I think it would go back to the comment I made about the need to see these things in an integrated way. Um, not only thinking about the health of the nuclear regime, but also linking that to the strains which are emerging in the Chemical Weapons Convention, um, the difficulties we have in a discussion over conventional arms control, um, the, let's face it, long-term neglect of issues around biological weapons and uh, especially technology development in the field of life sciences and their potential implications. Um, it's why I emphasized this uh, comprehensive concept of arms control, which was very much the way these things were approached in the past, and finding our way back to looking at these things in an integrated way. I wonder if the chair would allow me to ask Gudrun a question. Since I'm very interested in this and I've never been able to figure it out for myself, perhaps you have a view of it, Gudrun, and that is, why did the Russians decide to go this convoluted route of, uh, of cheating on the treaty? Why didn't they just use the withdrawal mechanism that's in the INF treaty? If they felt so seriously about this, why try to cheat? They were gonna get caught. <laughs> Right, again, a very good question. Uh, to my mind, th this is taking a long view of, of Russian foreign and security policy. And the notions of, of treaties from when the Soviet Union was a superpower is very, has been very important. Uh, so, to my mind, why why take the step to break it or, or leave the treaty? It, it doesn't reflect, it doesn't look good. So it, it, it's better than, <coughs> so when the US finally said we're gonna withdraw, uh, to me it seemed like there had been a chicken race mm -hmm. and the US blinked. So now Russia can, uh, say that, well, it was the U.S. who left it. Um, and and if, they, if, if Russia had decided to you know, play by the book and say, we're now leaving this treaty, uh, it would have exposed Russia to international criticism that they, they didn't want. That, that's my, but uh, again, I can. I have a question for you, if the chair allows me to. Uh, for, for Rose, uh, would you say, with all your experience and in hindsight, that there is no legitimate legitimacy at all to this Russian uh, worries about the missile defense? Could, could that have been incorporated somehow in earlier treaties? Well, I have never quite understood uh, why uh, Russia has so overreacted to national missile defense uh, as it has been developed in the United States since the demise of Star Wars. Yes, the uh, Reagan era, era program could have undermined uh, the uh, nuclear offensive deterrent of the, at that time, Soviet Union, because it was a huge and, uh, in theory, very capable system. Uh, although Reagan himself 
said, no, 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 we're going to have a cooperative relationship with the, with the Soviet Union. We're going to somehow develop this together to protect us all. So he had in his mind that it also would not threaten the strategic offensive deterrent of the Russian Federation per se. But there was a very interesting decision that was made at the time of Star Wars, and that was by the then, um, well, they, they were dying in rapid order at that point, but uh, Andropov was then uh, the chief of the Politburo and, and the leader of the country, and he said, we're not going to overreact to this system. We are going to develop a very capable countermeasures to ensure the penetration capability of our ICBM force. First, the ICBMs, I think only later SLBMs as they became more sophisticated. And you've seen that trajectory pursued now for uh, 36 years that they've been developing very, very capable countermeasures loaded on the front end of their ballistic missile force. They have, in my mind, through these kinds of countermeasures, ensured the penetration capability of their, of their ballistic missile force. So I, I keep asking, why are you so worried? I mean, honestly speaking, it's, uh, it does make me uh, puzzled, I, I have to say. I do understand that's the way the rhetoric runs, and it's very consistent. We heard it in the New START negotiations. But my view is, uh, after all the work they have done since uh, Yuri Andropov started this ball rolling in 1983, they should have confidence in the penetration capability of their, of their ballistic missile force. Ian, you ask for the floor. I think this question of why Russia didn't simply do the same that the United States did with the ABM Treaty and say, we've made our assessment, we no longer feel this is in our interests, we're going to make use of clause in the treaty um, to withdraw rather than um, taking a different approach. I think this is a really interesting question. Um, and I wonder if it, it is illustrative of two things. Um, one is the need to put these things into the broader context, not just of arms control and developments in military security, but wider political developments. It seems to me that internal discussion in Russia was taking place at exactly the same time that there was an attempt to uh, bring European countries back together after the um, Georgia war and at a time when there was a new administration which had in the United States which had a different perspective on the potential for relations with Russia. Um, so there were also wider considerations that probably were factors and it also makes you wonder how much information flow and um, knowledge there is within the Russian system of what was happening in the kind of military technical area. And leading on from that, a second point is, have we actually lost over time, from a European perspective at least, the capacity to make really good analyses of what's happening with the Russian colleagues? Um, is, there, is there a case for a much stronger um, collective European effort to understand what Russian perspectives are and what Russian uh, activities really mean? Um, we talk a lot about the need for military-to-military -military contact with Russia, but uh, we probably also have a gap there in terms of intra-European discussions of um, these issues, not least in a collective approach to, to thinking about um, arms control possibilities. Uh, I think this wider perspective in terms of the chronology is probably also a factor. Um. Thank you very much. Uh, I just one question uh, in relation to 
the issue that has sort of surfaced uh, lately, and that is the question of whether or not China should be part in any sort of future discussion on arms control and disarmament. Uh, and I was wondering if you have any views on, on, uh, on uh, sort of changing a bilateral negotiation relationship to trilateral, and perhaps not when you're at it, why not multilateral and the rest of the nuclear weapon states? I don't know if you have any views on that. Oh, yes, please. The reality of the situation is that uh, still the United States and, and Russian Federation have way more operationally deployed warheads and warheads in reserve than uh, than China. And while there is that enormous disparity in capability, it's difficult to see how you would structure a reduction negotiation, and the Chinese have conveyed that message very, very clearly. I, however, do believe that it is time to draw China into the discussion. I have watched with great interest in the past uh, several years of the um, evolution of the so-called P5 process, wherein uh, China, Russia, UK, France, and the United States are getting together three or four times a year and have now launched discussions in that, in that setting on strategic stability. I welcome that. It, to me, it's a kind of early way to begin to talk about uh, uh, about the advantages of restraint uh, to the Chinese uh, and to begin to draw them into the discussion. But I, I take uh, the view that this is a long game. And as long as the Russian Federation and the United States have so many more warheads than China, it's going to be very difficult to structure any kind of reduction negotiation involving them, just on the face of it, never mind what, what Chinese interests are, just the negotiability of the, of the thing, I, I don't see um, as a negotiator. Hey, uh, I have now run out of questions, and I will now open up for questions and comments from the floor, and I will kindly ask you to be brief also, and I see Lars-Erik Lundin sitting over there raising his hand. Just coming back to the... Uh optimism that you showed, uh, Deputy Secretary General, in the beginning when talking about verifiability. We are a couple of people in the audience here, Ambassador Ultenius and others, who were involved in the very early negotiations here in Stockholm in 1983-84, trying to open up for a dialogue. And we have a, a, a fantastic book, which I brought with me by uh, Lynn Hansen, uh, and uh, Ambassador Grinevsky from the, the chief Soviet negotiator, who was literally told by Marshal Ogarkov when he went to him to explain what he was up to in Stockholm, where he was told by uh, Ogarkov that everything that the Soviet Union were saying at the time, in terms of non-use of, uh, of nuclear weapons, etc., uh, no surprise attacks, etc., all of that was wrong. There was a total he had a total misunderstanding of what was the actual uh, policy of the country that he was represented here in Stockholm. So uh, my question to you, and partly, partly also to Gudrun, is do we have less of a... You know much more now in terms of verification already, national technology. But do we actually have a less of a distance now between the declared doctrine that Gudrun went and the real policy? Do we actually know what the main actors actually are planning to do in case of a serious? Because actually the name of the game for us, I mean for most of us here, risk prevent, prevent a nuclear war to prevent war. So that for me is an essential question. 
I will let uh, Gudrun take up the, the doctrinal uh, policy uh, side of the question, but just in terms of um, the experience uh, we have accumulated with the Soviets and Russians since that time in uh, not only negotiating but also implementing arms control treaties and agreements, I think has accumulated into um, a certain pragmatic ability to work work together and to accomplish uh, real results, despite the political overlay that may be there. And the brief example I'll offer is that when uh, the Russian Federation seized Crimea a few years ago, I, at that time, was in the Department of State. I was very concerned about the implications for, for New START because we always believe that uh, reduction, continued reduction of nuclear weapons is uh, an existential good and should continue, and uh, we really wanted to focus on that. So I called my counterpart in Russia, got the, the confirmation very shortly that the US government desired that, in fact, they were continuing without interruption to uh, implement the New START Treaty. And then what we saw in the field uh, with the inspectors, never a word about the severe differences that developed rather quickly between Russia and NATO countries, Russia and Washington, over what they were doing in seizing uh, Ukrainian territory and, and uh, destabilizing the Donbass. So the inspectors just went about their business and continued to implement uh, the New START Treaty. Again, to my mind, several people might argue with this, you know, no, we should have somehow halted implementation of New START, but I, and we were concerned the Russians might do so. But I think it is an, an existential good to continue to reduce and eliminate no matter what. Uh, that this supersedes other concerns we may have. We continue to call them and continue to press them and sanction them when they do things like seize Crimea. But we need to continue to work to reduce and eliminate weapons of mass destruction. So, And here I, I see a pragmatism and a willingness uh, to, work, to work together uh, that probably had not yet at its proof of principle back in, in 1983. All right. Uh, so regarding the launch on warning strike that Putin was talking about, to me, that is the strategic level. That is the strategic deterrence to protect that at any cost. Uh, in other words, to uh, protect the strategic level and then to have have possibilities at the lower level, which brings me into the non-strategic nuclear weapons and the arsenal. The Russian arsenal is, is uh, the, of course, we know the biggest in the world. We know they exercise regularly with non-strategic uh, nuclear uh, weapons. Um, so. That's uh, that's one thing. I my, my understanding of it. I I wouldn't want to exaggerate the risk of an uh, by mistake a nuclear uh, war. On at, at least that's my take on on the Russian side. This is very much regulated, and and uh, according to the military doctrine. It is the president who will say okay to to use nuclear weapons. 
So I, w I wouldn't uh, exaggerate that part. Besides taking Ian's point, we have to see things in a context. These days there are conventional weapons uh, which have uh, also a very high destructive power. Um, and in, uh, to that end, uh, the Russian military doctrine also talk about the importance of having a, a non-nuclear uh, deterrent capability, other weapon systems. Also, just if I may, uh, regarding uh, Ian's point about the West not taking into Russia's concern or the knowledge. I mean, I could give a special seminar on this. How, since I've been around for too long, I think, um, uh, but having seen all the knowledge centers of the West, not least in, in the US, being totally dismantled. My American colleagues were in despair uh, at times, and it leads me to one of my my points that, regardless of of the weather in security policy, uh, we in the West should always have uh, a capability analyzing Russians. So I uh, I do think that we have still quite a bit to walk towards that end, what it used to be in the 80s, to, to get the understanding. And, and sometimes today you can hear uh, Russian politicians saying that the West has a complete uh, wrongful view of, of Russia. Uh, they don't specify exactly what is uh, wrong with it, but uh, the more the merrier in the Russian studies field. Thank you. And I'll give the floor to the gentleman on the front row here. Yeah, hi, I'm Hunter Hustis, <clears throat> formerly the U.S. Air Force and now an independent analyst. Um, Rose made, a, I think, a, a really hopeful, uh, well-justified argument for optimism, especially when it comes to technology, uh, mentioning verification compliance and new, new methods. She also mentioned the role of citizens. And Ian kind of built on that a little bit. But I think it brings in the issue of disintermediation. If you think of climate or... If you uh, think of the Hong Kong protests, it's, it's, it's not controlled, so it has its own dynamic and impact on the political uh, le leadership. And if you combine that with, okay, we've got technology that increases our confidence in the facts, I'm curious of the panel's uh, thoughts about how you sustain political backbone even with the facts, because we saw with MH17 a lack of will for political leadership to, to say what was true. And I, I wouldn't expect Rose to comment on this, but one could reflect on NATO's uh, nuclear participating nations and their lack of desire to communicate that importance to their public. So while I think we've got, I think it's made a great point about the optimism for the tools going forward, how does that relate to how we can improve the political backbone to sustain the commitment for climate as opposed to weather? Uh, 
I mean, this is, I think, almost the most important question when we think about risk reduction. Um, uh, what's going to be the governance approach when bad things happen? And we've seen this already with incidents. You know, you'll have a, something which occurs, maybe a, two ships or a ship and an aircraft in the high seas. Um, within five minutes, a senior decision maker has a journalist with a microphone under their nose saying, what are you going to do? Um, you have some other part of the political establishment saying we must be strong, we can't cave, we must react. Um, the whole dynamic of managing problems uh, requires a new uh, governance structure, which we don't have today. We still work through intergovernmental processes within institutions, um, which require sometimes consensus <laughs> to, to take an action. So we have this huge mismatch um, between the need to respond in a very dynamic and complicated environment and the governance structures that are available to deal with this. Um, and I think there are a lot of risks just around that. What's going to be the governance? And, and this is a, it's only going to get worse. Um, when you think about the introduction of technologies which may um, at least bring to the table of decision makers um, potential options and solutions which were generated without human intervention, uh, you might find that you're in a situation where people are um, having to take decisions at a point where the issue has already resolved itself, so to speak. Uh, things have already moved beyond the point where they're trying to make a decision at the point where they have to actually decide. So I think uh, designing governance structures that reduce risk, um, this, is a, this is a very, very important area. It's not arms control as we've kind of traditionally defined it, um, but I think we have to pay very close attention to these risk reduction structures, um, some, of which will, some of which are already discussed. How do you kind of slow things down, increase reaction times, um, create uh, secure frameworks for communication? I mean, some of this is already thought about. I think it's much more developed in a bilateral US-Russian context than it is in any other context. Um, I think, again, this is an area where collectively Europeans have not really invested very much in thinking about crisis management and risk reduction. I think this is really the, the governance of complicated problems in a changing environment is probably a more accurate reflection of what we need to be doing in the next couple of years than arms control as we've classically defined it. I uh, entirely uh, subscribe to Ian's answer, but the other point I would just add in commenting about uh, NATO's nuclear participating nations, I think throughout NATO, and this is a very long-term, um, long-horizon uh, goal, but I think throughout NATO we need to be educating publics more on, um, on nuclear weapons policy, on the threats, on the challenges, on the issues, and on the... Uh, stabilizing aspects also of NATO nuclear policy and how we work together to uh, ensure through, for example, resilience, how we work together to ensure that uh, the stability of the, of the nuclear mission as it exists within NATO can be sustained uh, in even the most, uh, the most harrowing circumstances. But that's, it's a long-term horizon. It's not something that can be done overnight, and it has been woefully neglected since the demise uh, of the, the fall of the wall, the end of the Cold War. Thank you very much, Sebelon. Thank you, Christer. Uh, Sebelon Karlader, I have a background in the Youth Atlantic Treaty Association. So my question to the panel is that I read about concerns that cyber weapons could be used to target 
command and controls system. Uh, and I'm wondering if you believe that this could be discussed in future arms control talks. Thank you. My answer, which is, um, I think um, that we, we've been lucky in the, in the 50 plus years of uh, arms control efforts and that we've had hardware to regulate. But when you get to the software of cyber capabilities, you have a much different problem and a more complicated problem. That's why I don't believe that you can um, pattern match beyond, beyond what's been done in, uh, in arms control over the past 70 years to uh, constraints and restraint in the cyber arena. And I think that requires additional thought. There's been a lot of thought put into it over the years in the, in the world of the UNGGEs, the group, groups of government experts in other, other settings. I don't think it's hopeless uh, to, to regulate, to develop rules of the road, uh, to have some confidence building measures. Perhaps technology will even deliver potential for uh, restraints uh, in terms in some way in, in future years. I can't envision it right now. but. The only thing I will say is we've made progress in this area, including in the legal uh, arena, but there is a huge amount of work to be done and we're, we're chasing a rapidly moving target because of the evolution of cyber technology, which continues to be very rapid. So um, I think uh, here it's not gonna be so easy, but I will say that uh, it's a good uh, challenge for our younger generation to take on. Not that we're gonna give up on it, but. Okay, uh, uh, just just a footnote, if you will, on, on, on the issue of uh, information security. You're well aware that Russia uh, is in, in favor of, of uh, regulating uh, information security uh, in, in the UN, and uh, China has given its support to it, and uh, no one in the West has, uh, mainly because uh, according to this idea, the regulation should also involve content of the messages, uh, which is where Sam West is away from. So, just put that. Ambassador Hirman. <coughs> uh, thank you. I've got three points on uh, Russian policies that I want to make. The one is a sort of recollection I have when sometime in 99 or 2000, together with our then for, uh, defense minister, I visited the uh, General Staff Academy in Moscow, and at the end of the briefings, I asked the Colonel General, <coughs> what about nuclear weapons? And then he said, well, as to tactical nuclear weapons, uh, that's my business, we train uh, our staff uh, with that, that's an, uh, part of our, uh, uh, the weaponry of our divisions. As to strategic nuclear weapons, I don't have a clue. That's uh, the big boys in, in the Kremlin, that's Mr. Yeltsin and so on, or Putin. Uh, but he made a very clear division there. Uh, whether he was sincere or not, I can't say. Uh, but I do think, uh, I have a concern myself about tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, they are not very much regulated. The, United, uh, the Russians do have uh, tactical nuclear weapons on their territory. Uh, the United States and NATO have, have them on, in some places in Europe. And I wonder, whether there are some talks or contacts or discussions in this field going on that would be of interest. Of course, the 
the difference uh, between tactical nuclear weapons and advanced uh, conventional precision weapons uh, is being diluted, and that's a problem. Um, but then coming to another issue, namely, why did not the Russians themselves pull out of the INF Treaty if they didn't like it? I would say part of the answer is problem is that there is a strain of legalism, always been a strain, a strong strain of legalism in Soviet and Russian thinking. You know, if you have a treaty uh, that should be respected, we will not be the first to withdraw. And I don't think there is any, I can't think of any example when they have left a treaty that they have themselves signed. Yes, they may cheat, that they can do, but they try to cheat under an aspect of uh, deniability, if possible, but they will never uh, uh, drop out. The American tradition is somebody else. Well, we don't like this. Well, well let us leave it. So there are differences. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, and um, what was the third point? Oh, never mind about that. I'll skip it. <laughs> The uh, current administration in Washington has proposed to the Russians that there be uh, a new, the next negotiation should uh, incorporate non-strategic nuclear weapons. So that uh, has been proposed, and uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, I that's a very interesting point, um, and I remember uh, the convoluted way they dealt with uh, their uh, ceasing to implement their commitments under the CFE treaty. They, if you remember reading that the legal analysis they did, which was wrapping themselves in circles to give themselves a legal rationale when it was completely absent from the treaty. Uh, it was completely absent from the treaty, any possibility of suspending your obligations under the treaty. So it's uh, quite right what you say, that they, they have this legalistic streak that some, sometimes manifests itself in very bizarre ways. I don't think this is just an American perspective to say if you are steadily cheating on a treaty over the years, somehow you are under you are severely undermining international law. But mm -hmm. well, hey, anyway, thank you for that insight. Mm -hmm. Can I add my, my third comment, and that was about missile defense. Rose said uh, you couldn't understand why the Russians made such a fuss because they have their sort of second strike capability, their reaction force. So that's all very true. Uh, but I mean, one concern they said, and I tended to believe them in the end, that was uh, a couple of years ago when, when it was very active, uh, and the, the prospects of building an uh, ABM or an anti-missile defense installation in northeastern Poland. Why there? Why so near uh, Russian border and Kaliningrad border when the supposed reason was that it should prevent uh, uh, some Iranian missiles from flying and, and attacking the uh, United States. I mean, very difficult to grasp from, from, for a layman. Why, why did uh, the U.S. have to put that installation exactly there? Or at least they used that argument, and I think even there was something to that argument. That was my point. Okay. Um, regarding the, the substrategic uh, nuclear weapons, uh, to my mind, um, I mean, if you if you uh, enter into negotiation uh, on on arms control, uh, the end goal is security for everyone, and there must be a strategic balance between the parties, so to speak. Both must win. So my question to Rose then would be: Why would Russia want to agree to negotiate in an area where they have supremacy? 
Well, my view of that historically has been that where the Russians possess uh, superiority in non-strategic nuclear warheads, the U.S. has superiority on the strategic side. So a, a deal could be worked out on that basis. That was always my, my view. Thank you very much. Next on my list is Titi Ereste. Ah, yeah, Titi Ereste from Cypri. And, and my first question is a bit technical. I don't know if you're able to answer it. It's for Rose Gottemiller about the Russian violation. Because um, according to at least US media has suggested that the tests um, that, the, that Russia did on the INF range prohibited INF Treaty prohibited missile were done in Kap from Kapustin Yar, and uh, doesn't that implicate or imply that Kazakhstan was involved in the violation? Because I've heard that when you test missiles from that side to those ranges, they would need to land in Kazakhstan. So that's my first question, and then related to the previous question about the potential Russian motivations. Um, uh, for developing these um, controversial cruise, cruise missiles. Uh, do you think it's possible that it would have been partly um, motivated by Russian concerns about missile defense, like right, rightly or wrongly, I think, or whether you think Russian claims or concerns make sense? They have obviously been concerned about it, and in 2011 uh, Medvedev said that if the dispute over missile defense wouldn't be solved, then Russia would ensure the ability to take out uh, missile defenses in Europe. And in that connection, he referred to Iskander missiles. But do you think the INF missiles of uh, ground-launched ground ground INF missiles would have some value from this perspective? And if I may add... A third part to the question related to what Ian said about the need to integrate different um, aspects uh, in arms control negotiations. Uh, do you think it would be time to talk about um, missile defenses and advanced conventional weapons alongside nuclear weapons reductions, considering that even if China is not part of the next round of arms control negotiations, China also has huge concerns about the same things as Russia. I guess all of those were to me. Uh, I don't actually know. I've never looked at the at the range bands, uh, you know, where the missiles would have to land, so I can't answer the first question. Uh, in any event, I don't uh, believe that Kazakhstan would necessarily be implicated in the violation, uh, because I don't know what uh, the... the uh, treaty arrangements are between Kazakhstan and Russia uh, in terms of uh, the, the test site and where the missiles land, whether there's some agreement that Russia gives notification every time they're testing. I'm sure they give some notification, but exactly what they're testing and, you know, so I, I think, I, I think that I'd have a lot of questions about, about your first question, uh, whether or not Kazakhstan could ever be implicated in that case. I, I just don't know. Uh, the second point, um, my view is, uh, and this is about negotiations and, and where you know different weapons fit in negotiations. My view is to always keep uh, negotiations, the way you succeed is to keep them as simple as possible. If you've got enormous 
multiple baskets of issues that you're trying to, to bring together, uh, it's, it's really difficult to get to yes. And so nuclear reductions, let's focus on nuclear reductions. And uh, if you're thinking about non-strategic nuclear uh, weapons, then perhaps you bring in uh, the, the, the uh, other warheads on the US side to try to reach some balanced uh, arrangement. Uh, that would satisfy the interests of both sides, but I wouldn't pile a lot of issues from other, you know, from other places on uh, on a negotiation of that kind. I do think it's worthwhile uh, to look at uh, long-range uh, precision strike. Now uh, we are already facing this threat in NATO. You were asking about whether the INM seven two nine could be used as a missile defense killer. They have already loaded up. Kaliningrad with Iskander missiles. We've already been facing highly, in NATO, highly accurate, dual-capable missiles uh, in now not only in Kaliningrad, but now also in Crimea for some time. So as far as I'm concerned, if, if they want to kill missile defenses, they've, they've, got, they've got it already. Uh, so I, I don't see the 9M729 as being a particular contributor in that regard. Yeah, just on the, the missile defense point, the, the chronology of the investments in Europe um, uh, and the explanations given to Russia have simply never been accepted um, by the Russian side, but they were explained repeatedly and in great detail. Um, the decisions to have the, the sites in Europe were connected with the expansion not expansion, but the change of emphasis in missile defense from exclusively protecting the US homeland to protecting um, allies in the context of continuous um, investment in missile forces in the Middle East. Um, so the, the rationale was, was rather clear and was continuously explained to the Russian colleagues. They simply never believed it. Um, so I'm not quite sure how one gets around that. Um, if, if goes back to this continuous erosion of, of trust um, when, you, when you explain clearly why you do things and the other side simply doesn't accept. Um, I'm not sure how you solve that problem. But I don't think it was a lack of information or explanation. Um, the, the rationales for the different missile defense programs have been explained exhaustively and continuously. Sorry, I was, I was linking it to your point about the rationale for developing the intermediate range forces. Um, that, that would have been because the intermediate range forces would have no impact on missile defenses on the US homeland. So uh, um, I, I don't think it's a very convincing argument, to be quite honest. So, oh, ladies and gentlemen, the time is up. We've had a very interesting discussion here. And I would like to thank the panelists, and in particular, Secretary General Rose Guttemiller for taking the time. Sorry, sorry, Deputy Secretary General. <laughs> for taking your time to come here to visit us here at the Swedish Institute for International Affairs. And I would also like to thank Ian Anthony and also Gudrun Persson for taking their time to join us here in the panel today. And I think we will thank them with a round of applause. Thank you very much.
find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.